0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now.
1: If I'm being honest, yeah, coconut is like the only beauty product I've got and I use it for everything from masturbating to cooking, not the same pot, but even though it would <laughs> Welcome to The
0: World As It Should Be, a podcast in which we ask our guests to tell us what they would change to help create their perfect world.
2: By listening to what they'd like to change, we'll hear more about who they are, what they do and what inspires them.
0: This podcast is brought to you by the team behind Prima Donna, a uniquely anarchic and joyous festival of everything creative.
2: My name is Shona Abianka, and I'm a book publicist working with some of the most thought-provoking authors writing today.
0: I'm Catherine Riley, a writer and director of the festival. We're delighted to be your guides on this podcast adventure. Holly McNish describes herself as a writer who loves writing. She is also a poet, performer, educator, collaborator, and the first poet to record an album at Abbey Road Studios.
2: She has garnered over 10 million YouTube views for her online poetry performances, and her fans range from Pink to Tim Minchin. Benjamin Zephaniah said, I can't take my ears off her. Kay Tempest has described her poetry as welcoming, galvanising, and beautiful.
0: Holly has published four collections of poetry and one poetic memoir, Nobody Told Me, which was published in 2016, and for which she won the Ted Hughes Award for New Work in Poetry. She runs Page to Performance, delivering workshops in spoken word and poetry slams, and is part of the collective Point Blank Poets.
2: Holly's sixth book, another cross genre collection of poetry, memoir, and short stories, is called Slug and Other Things I've Been Told to Hate. It will be published in May. Holly, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot for having me. It's lovely to be here. Um, so I'm going to go dive straight into the th- the three points. I mean, the first one about the world as it should be, as which is the principle of the podcast. Yeah. Um, and I wondered if you could just read out the beginning of a poem that you put on Twitter recently.
1: Yeah, of course, no problem. So that uh, poem goes, I don't meditate, I masturbate. I simply don't have time for both.
2: And now you got a great reaction on Twitter for that. (laughs) I think a lot of women related. Um, So the first thing that you would change about the world is that you, in your own words, You would put masturbation as the first and forefront piece of safe sex education learning on the national curriculum. You say, Holly, that masturbation is the safest form of sex there is, but we still seem to be shaming it from day dot of sex education and still putting penetrative sex with a condom at the forefront of safe safe sex education. You said, I find this dangerous and counterintuitive to young people's safety and pleasure and self-confidence, especially girls. Can you tell us why you chose that? I chose it because
1: I think it's important. I also think it's something that is quite easily doable. Um, And I was trying to think of things that I think could change the world and wouldn't take like 20 years (laughs) or like revolution or civil war. Um, And I find it amazing. Like I didn't always think it, but I've just spent about two years reading a lot of books about sexual health, children's sexual health, pleasure, about the orgasm gap in straight relationships between men and women and like a lot of research. And for me, thinking about my personal life, it's sort of boiled down to that education. Um. And I feel like if I had spent my life having sex, the way that sex education and the media um, and films, and people talk about porn a lot, but for me it was like romantic comedies and stuff, the way that they portray sex was basically a guy sort of on top under the covers moving in and out three times and then the woman screaming in pleasure and if i if i'd followed that advice i don't think i would have ever had an orgasm in my life ever because i'm not somebody that orgasms from penetrative sex like that unless i'm very turned on and have already had an orgasm before it and um and it amazes me that masturbation we sort of like i find it funny don't get me wrong but it's like what it well, it is the safest form of sex. And when I was at school, I got taught that safe sex was a condom on a carrot, basically. So we sat and put condoms on carrots, and we seemed to be all right teaching people that, but we were not all right teaching people about masturbation or like literally how to do it as well, and um, which maybe seems kind of silly for some like I have some friends that totally got how to do it but I think with like the anatomy of a vulva and vagina it's not as obvious as like an erect penis in your hand Um, and having spoken to a lot of like boys I was friends with at school that were quite open about it it's not as obvious for girls it's not talked about as much but it's really important because it's also like the way that we're taught sexual pleasure in straight I have to say straight relationships because it's not the same with um woman-to-woman relationships um I think it's it's really dangerous basically because you're taught that yeah you're taught that penetrative sex with a condom is like the safest sex right but it's not it's the second least safe sex you can have really um so yeah I just think the idea that We start our sexual education and still do, like it's changing, but it's still sort of heterosexual penetrative sex is still seen as, you know, the main form of what sex means, even though it's sexual intercourse, really, should be calling it. And um, I think it sets, sets sex up as something that you initially do with somebody else, whereas even now... masturbation sort of deemed a sort of teenage thing still I think especially for people in relationships some people that I'm friends with see it as kind of cheating if their partner still masturbates um which I find odd but I like it's one of my great I I love it really (laughs) and um It's one of my my best pleasures. It amazes me that we've demonized it so much. It's like, it's so safe, like so safe. And it's so environmentally friendly. It's free. You know, like everything about it, it's sort of like a quite revolutionary act in that case. But I think that's probably why we've demonised it so much because... You can't monetize it. There's no catch. Yeah, and there's nothing negative about it. Like throughout history, we've made up so much stuff about it, making us go blind or like what? All this stuff. And it's, um, yeah, it's fascinating. But I think it's important to start sex education with you and your own body and your own pleasure and your own wants um, rather than starting it. As an idea of this is what somebody else will do to you, or you should do to somebody else.
2: Yeah, I really love the idea of the fact of kind of busting the myth that it's shameful or selfish. And I'm wondering where this, the whole shame label came from. I think it's like sort of
1: quite (laughs) an ongoing thing. I mean, religion, lots of religions have quite a big say in shaming pleasure in general as a sinful act um I think that's a big part of it and I know it's sort of I don't know people get sort of funny blaming religion for certain things but I do think the shaming of masturbation is pretty much down to a few major world religions or texts of those religions as well um yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know because there's really nothing about it. There's nothing about it that's that's bad. I find I find it quite um interesting as well because I don't I don't live with a partner. I live with my daughter. Mm. And she's 10 and I've told her that I masturbate. So she sort of asked me what this vat of coconut oil by my bed was for, (laughs) if I'm being honest, yeah, coconut is like the only beauty product I've got and I use it for everything from masturbating to cooking, not the same pot, (laughs) even though it would (laughs) not. But that's pretty much all I need in life is this, like, coconut oil. And and she was like, what's that? I thought you used it to take off your mascara. Why is it by the bed? And I looked at her and she was like, oh, don't tell me anymore. And, like, ran out. But I told that to one of my friends who's married and she was sort of horrified that I told my daughter that I masturbated but she tells her kids that her and her husband have sex so I was like but that's the same like it's the same thing um and you haven't told them that there's any other possibility of sex and I've still got other people that have told their kids that pregnant you get pregnant automatically a week after marriage and stuff like that and I just (laughs) I just think it's so dangerous yeah I think it's so dangerous to make and I keep saying girls especially but it is different for girls and there is a lot of problems um as well with shaming young boys as well don't get me wrong um or people that are not heterosexual and you know so many things like that but I think in terms of you know we we we're almost getting there to actually know the difference between like a vulva and a vagina now in, in biology education. So if you don't even know that you've got anything between your legs other than like your vagina, you're not going to know that there's like labia to massage or a clitoris or anything like that because because we sort of just
0: weren't told that any of it existed. Um, it's really timely that we're talking about this today because there was a a, a story. Um, that came out this month about... I don't know if you've heard of the Womanizer, which is um, the latest sex toy to take the market by storm.
1: Is that the, like, suction? Yes, that one. Clip suction.
0: (laughs) Exactly that one. And the funniest thing about the story... Well, there's a few funny things about the story. Mostly the fact that the guy who invented it used uh, a pump from his fish tank as a prototype.
2: We're standing next to a fish tank right now, and it's really made me. Unrelated in in way,
0: Shona is next to a fish tank. Yeah,
2: but, um, I'm not looking at it the same anymore. But
0: he's an inventor. He's quite a. He's quite a. You know, a celebrated inventor. This guy, but he came to this uh, particular invention because he he apparently suddenly read statistics that suggested that women were less sexually satisfied than men. And it's like, how, how is that a sudden piece? Like that's been mm-hmm. well documented. And, and we're still kind of in exactly the same place as we are, were in Victorian times almost.
2: But I also wanted to ask you what about Kellogg's anti-masturbation pants are. <laughs> Yes. So, yeah, so that's it. That's
1: something that I was looking at in, in slug in the book that I wrote. And I actually found out about it because of a guy, Luke. <laughs> Luke, right? I, I wrote a poem about Kellogg's cereal because my daughter kept asking for Cocoa Pops, and um, I wrote this this poem basically that was saying that I just told her how racist John Kellogg's one of the brothers was, um, and that's why I didn't want to support them, which wasn't necessarily true, but um, got us out of the shops, and she stopped I was asking. Say, again. I haven't
2: heard that story. <laughs>
1: No, he is he was really oh, racist. He was? Like he uh, yeah, he was really racist. He was really xenophobic and he was um and he he was thought that um like interracial marriages were basically like people should be like not allowed to do it, arrested for doing it. It was disgusting. Like he was a really racist man. Wow. And um and I said to my daughter I don't want to support that company because he was a real racist. And then um and then one of my friends phoned me and said, "Oh, nice poem, Holly, but you're totally wrong." Um, Because actually John Kellogg's was a Puritan and he invented cornflakes as an anti-masturbation food product because he thought that sugars and spices and stuff led people to feel sexual pleasure led them to masturbate so John Kellogg's his history is amazing like he invented cages for kids to be put in if they couldn't stop masturbating he invented like metal pants to be put on boys that like hurt them if they got an erection he's really pro like clitoral burning and clitoral like acid stuff and he was terrible so my mate was like yeah so actually Cocoa Pops he would have hated because basically they're like really sugary And they're like the sexual <laughs> the sexual side of Kellogg's, which he didn't want, so if you want to teach your daughter that like masturbation stuff's all right, you should allow her to eat like all the cocoa pops oh, she that's wants logical just that's don't just don't buy the cornflakes basically wow,
0: that's so interesting um,
1: Wow, so this yeah, is in your book so, yeah, yeah, it's in the book, so I've got like seven sections in the book, and it's all things that I was told not to talk about or told to sort of hate, basically growing up, um but things that were a real big part of my life and I think would have been really helpful if people had talked about so there's stuff like grief but one of the sections is um is on parenting and that that stuff about Kellogg's is in is in that section basically about how important it is to teach our kids like the normal words for genitals and to just be a bit more open with them and stop saying stuff like Mummy and Daddy have sex to make a baby and stuff mm. like that. And <laughs> Slug is out in May, isn't it? So
2: it's not long to wait now.
1: Yeah, it's out in May.
0: Okay, so we're going to move on to the second thing that you would change, Holly, so the world is as it should be. Um, and you, have, you are arguing for everybody to get a down payment on their house. Um, so can you talk us through that? Yeah, so
1: this one, I guess, I don't concretely quite know how it would happen. But it mainly stems from the fact that, like a lot to do with land ownership, really, I think that's one of the biggest problems in the world, who owns the land and who doesn't. Um, So there's been quite a few battles throughout history about that. So it's quite a bigger problem to deal with, (laughs) but (laughs) not saying I definitely know how to do that. But um, just in terms of renting and mortgages, I find it horrific that mortgages, where I live at least, are often lower than renting. Um, and a lot of the reason that most people I know who who rent and have quite high rents, so I live just outside Cambridge, um, it's just because they don't have that 30 grand, mm. 20 grand, 40 grand, whatever it is, the down payment they need. So they're just stuck giving their money away renting do you think it's
0: as again we we are a podcast we're not a government policy <laughs> so you don't you don't have to like come up with the sums or anything but um <laughs> do you think it's it's as important as it is. it's important to like have have down payment on your house or or perhaps what we should do instead or as well is to introduce rent caps so that pe- yeah. people aren't clearing so, in that way
1: yeah i was just gonna say that rent caps or caps on the amount of property you can own mm. i think they have that in certain countries i know in berlin isn't it they have rent caps so that they can't gentrification can't just shove out people that live in there. um or stop people from living in cities in general. I think both. I think you can do both. And I'm not saying that it's essential to own your house. Like I um, can totally see why a lot of people would want to rent. But I also know that a lot of people don't want to and they they want to stay in the house they're in you know, mm. forever. Um, and especially in the UK, because we don't have such good rental agreements, the fact that you can be... Tossed out of a rental house. Probably yeah. shouldn't say tossed out after talking about making <laughs> Keep situation. the scene going. Doesn't really seem quite serious. um But yeah, chucked out with like, what was it, three months' notice? Yeah. I think it is on, on my contract. um Obviously, renting for some people is brilliant because you're wanting to move around and you like the idea of getting a mortgage or trying to buy somewhere is, you know, exactly what you don't want sort of makes you feel a bit sick of that idea of stability. But I rent, but yeah, the idea that. You could get thrown out within three months and have to find somebody and also renting as a as a parent was horrendous trying to find a place to rent like there's so many places that you rent that say no no um no smokers, no pets no children no they don't really <laughs>
2: me.
1: yeah yeah which I didn't even realize was legal and it's not legal in a lot of countries but it oh is in the God. UK so I had to lie and pretend that I didn't have a kid in order to see some of the places that oh were cheap enough God. for me to rent around here um, and then sort of beg the landlord of the place I'm in to meet my daughter to sort of prove that she wouldn't wow. be like throwing paint on the walls and I thought really compared wow. to like two professionals that might be having parties all the time or yeah. but I think it's I think it's because you would be, um as a landlord you'd be feel worse chucking out somebody right. with a kid um but that that was pretty hard i remember i had sort of 10, 10 viewings and <laughs> and then told maybe stupidly that i had a kid to the stage and they were just all cancelled because they oh didn't God. want children um so i was going to ask you what yeah.
0: rental horrors you've had but that's that's pretty much one of them
1: yeah it's rubbish but then there's other things about renting that i really like so I, I think okay, it's just too expensive for me anyway to put to put a mortgage on a on a place where I live. Um, but maybe this sounds really stupid, but living on my own with a kid, the idea of being liable for stuff suddenly happening to the house that I'm in, I don't think I could cope with. So I feel like it's a wee bit like living with somebody that can fix the fridge whenever it's broken.
2: Yeah, yeah. So I like that stuff.
0: So I'm going to move on a little bit from actual rental to think more about um, that balance between kind of being being like in regular work, paying the rent, all that sort of stuff. Um so Nobody Told Me is a sort of diary of motherhood with with poems. That's probably not the best description anyone's ever made of it, but that's what that's... Sorry. Um, it, alongside it kind of chronicling the the birth of your... Well, your pregnancy and the birth of your daughter, which is a really beautiful depiction of her growing up into a toddler. It also chronicles kind of almost incidentally your own career taking off as a poet. Um, and I just wondered how long was it before you called yourself... You, you talk in the book about that moment when you quit your like normal job how long was it before you felt like you could call yourself a poet or a writer and 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 do you do you own that term now do you own that
1: label for yourself so I (laughs) I still tend to put down writer just genuinely because I feel like a dickhead saying poet (laughs) (laughs) um that's purely the only reason like I guess (laughs) professionally I make most of my living by writing and reading out poems to people. So really to say I'm a poet should be all right. But it's just, there's too much of a thing between the vocation and the like philosophical idea with poetry. And I know a lot of people that call themselves a poet and they're not people that I'm that enamored by to put it <laughs> to put it politely um so yeah I have trouble and I'm not in a family where introducing myself as a poet would <laughs> garner any other reaction than a piss take out of me for the rest of my life so it yeah. has
2: been quite a long a long process I think yeah. that would be the majority of families to be honest and I will argue. Uh, yeah I, will say I think you so. are a writer I, I think you are absolutely a writer and an author and to be yeah. honest, I feel like a poet is a subdivision in a way. Of oh, that. so nice. Well, I yeah, I like
1: I like saying I like saying author, because I'm pretty proud that I've written books and taken a lot of work. Um so yeah. Yeah.
0: So actually you you've kind of touched on something I wanted to ask you about, which is about intellectual snobbery. Um uh and you you've actually just sort of talked about the inverse, which is like your family and my family, it would be like Mickey taking but in terms of intellectual <laughs> snobbery there was a there was a piece in the you probably have read this but if you haven't don't but anyway in the journal PN Review by a woman <laughs> yeah, you know did. that you know what I'm going to mention so she <laughs> she used the term the cult of the noble amateur which is you know deeply derogatory
2: Is the
0: poetry world still dominated by that kind of elitism? And and actually, even though she was a female critic, it's a very kind of sexist view um, of of what proper poetry looks like. And you know, at Prima Donna, we're always trying to tackle these kind of walls that are put up around genres or or issues or whatever. And and I wondered if if you wanted to take that on head on, or if you just you know if that's kind of stuff that you tackle through your work more.
1: Yeah, so that <laughs> that review was definitely the most scathing thing I've ever had said about me. I think in my life in general, to be honest. I don't think I've even ever had an argument with a friend that's been so mean as that review. Um, and yeah, I feel a bit like she was sort of set up. I mean, not totally, but I think it's very clever of the editor of PN Review to ask a woman of the same age as I am to do that review. Um, I'm not saying obviously it was totally her opinion and her writing and everything. But um, yeah, I read it and I don't agree with most of it. (laughs) I thought it was pretty weak in terms of using certain things to deem poetry not... Oh, well, amateur, I guess mm. so certain things that she was using, I think are pure snobbery if it was if it was about the work, like just the stuff where she criticized my writing, that's fine, like I can learn from criticism. I think literary criticism is a is a good thing, but I found it weird and definitely just pure snobbery, things that were picked up on, like the fact that I've shared poems on YouTube mm. yeah. being used as a example of sort of attention seeking and you know this person doesn't care about poetry because Ugh, she puts yeah. her stuff on YouTube which is weird because you've got you know you've got like Ted Hughes readings on YouTube and you have Shakespeare plays on YouTube like it's just a different medium to share stuff um, and I find that happens a lot in the poetry world as soon as I am um, as soon as I started putting poems on YouTube, I'm a YouTube poet. As soon as I did, I think I've done three poetry slam competitions and I'm a, you know, a slammer yeah. rather yeah. than a poet. Instagram's the same. Like I'm an Insta poet, even if I'm, you know, taking pictures out of a 300-page book and putting them on Instagram. I've never been called a book poet or a page poet, despite that being the main form that I share the poems in. Um, so, yeah, I think I think there's a lot of snobbery. That article, <laughs> my, my cousin's up in Scotland had quite different reactions to me I think I was a bit calmer than them about it my mum was my mum was really upset my cousin texted and said give me her address I'm going to brick the house (laughs) which is obviously not the um thing that you want (laughs) the the,
0: the intention you want maybe not the actual execution
1: no but it was pretty funny like seeing the different reactions of like friends and stuff um yeah yeah, it's But a, I guess t- it's like any criticism. You sort of have to just think, like, is this about me or is this about her? Is this true? Yeah. Can I learn from this? Or if the, is this just purely...
2: I don't know, clickbait or is it horrible? Um, it kind of sounds like there was something generally against anyone that puts stuff on YouTube. Yeah, so it was.
1: It was really odd. It was really odd. And to sort of claim, <laughs> you said like anyone that goes and enjoys this person's poetry is ignorant and uneducated. Wow. It's Like don't like insult other, like other people that like poetry. It was really weird. And a lot of the a lot of the people that she sort of put up as these sort of canonical is that the word canonical figures like Byron for example don't get me wrong great writer but as if he wouldn't have been on Instagram like as if he wouldn't have been getting his penis out sending pictures probably making like videos of him wanking whilst reciting poems like do not tell me that these people would not have been doing much worse than I am
2: doing I love the thought Um, of sitting in a bar with you Holly and just being like oh sorry I just got a dick pic from Byron (laughs) <laughs> Sorry. Sorry about that. Yeah. Um, and then a romantic poem read yeah. to me whilst he <laughs> looked at himself in the mirror. I wanted to also <laughs> ask you about Wikipedia. They seem to be very keen on the fact that you used to work in Little Chef. <laughs> because they have mentioned it a couple of times. What is all that about? So I I sometimes change the
1: Wikipedia stuff, and I don't know if you're meant to do that, but I've changed it a couple of times. Um I've changed the photo. If I'm honest, which is really vain. How often do you go and change it? Oh no, I've, I've done it twice in like f- two four days. That's out <laughs> <laughs> twice in my life. But I've only done it. I did it after that review, actually, because I think somebody that loved that review went and changed the Wikipedia, and they had just a few examples of things in my life, but then put just loads of quotes about. I don't know why I was an ignoramus or something, or I can't Too remember much what the word that was. And... Yeah, so the little chef thing, I might have added myself. I am not sure. Basically, I, I quite often get—I don't know if it's pigeonholed as a working-class poet. Like people <laughs> want to push me into that category because it sort of helps, I guess, with quotas. And I am not at all um, working-class, like my grandparents were, but not not my parents. Um, and I think quite a lot of sort of middle class artists play up the working class thing, and sometimes that pushes actual working class people out of the art scene. Um, yeah, I don't know. I won't change it again. <laughs> I don't often read about you can myself on it as Wikipedia. It's often
2: as
0: always. I honestly, a on the website on a weekly I do. Basis.
2: I make it longer and longer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 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 so we're going to move on to the third way, Holly. That if you could, you would make the world as it should be, and you said that you would make the study of two foreign languages compulsory up to GCSE or hires in Scotland. um And you said that you aren't sure, but you think it would have an effect on xenophobia if we had a broader linguistic cultural education.
1: Yeah, I think that sort of sums up as far as I've got with it, and I. Th- I think this is quite, maybe it's it's purely because I studied two languages. Um,
2: Which languages
1: were they? French and German. And then in, so at A level, I was the only person in my whole secondary school that studied two languages. So I sort of was questioning why I wanted to. Um, and without embarrassing my dad too much, the reason I was really into studying French is that we went on holiday once to France when I'd started studying it at school and my dad wouldn't let me order um like a beer and whatever I can't remember what we were ordering from a cafe even though I knew how to do it and I was like can I order He was like no I'm ordering um as the sort of man of the family and then he pointed and just said beer really loudly <laughs> in the sort of way that you'd see like <laughs> joke sitcom and the guy behind the counter. Just looked at him like he just wanted to fucking punch him in the face, as you often do when you're working as a waiter or waitress. And then, um, and then I was like, "Dad, I can order it. Like, can I just order it?" And he was like, "No, beer, beer, beer," and just sort of shouting. And I think there's this like arrogance, or well, I don't think it's it's pretty proven in his historically, an arrogance with. I guess like the monolingual British. Don't know if that's how I should. Do put you think it. that's because it was your dad? Like, was your mum there? Did she say anything? No, she didn't say anything. She could also speak a bit of French, um, but no, she didn't say anything. Um, and I, at my school, it was really like if we went on the French exchange, it was just like, why are we having these frogs over here? Going to have hairy armpits? Look at their stupid. Like, like, like it was a. It was like a scathing atmosphere for that sort of thing um and I feel like the fact that we sort of don't give a toss about learning other languages because you know everyone speaks English but the amount that I have got from life just from just from being able to speak even a tiny bit to other people or just being able to see that not all cultures think about things the same or that different phrases you know you know like like in some languages the word for giving birth is like giving light or the word for midwife is wise woman in french or like there's so much you learn from different languages so i guess like a universal language would be good but i'd i think i'd just prefer us to to make the effort to make the effort and to have to learn more also because i guess if you know we speak english and i i find it weird how close we are to the usa because of the you know media from there and the films and the culture um compared to the countries that are much closer than us and that's purely from a linguistic point of view like my daughter already thinks that we're like exactly the same as the usa basically that that's probably culturally the closest country we have um that, that sort of scares me a wee bit less so now less so now <laughs> but it doesn't scare me the USA is bloody amazing um I say that having gone there like once when I was 12 but <laughs> I imagine the USA is an amazing country to visit um but just our sort of scathing nature and we don't we don't like if you go into most European countries you hear on the radio songs in lots of different languages we don't we don't have any of that in this country it's very hard to just pick up another language unless we study it at school So maybe I wouldn't feel like that if it was Sweden or somewhere where it's such a small spoken language that they're all learning English as well. But unless you actually sort of force kids to learn a language, if they're not in like a multilingual household, which a lot are, um, but more aren't,
2: um, you just don't pick it up. You just hear English on the radio, English on the telly.
1: Um, That's
2: really true. You mentioned in Nobody Told Me that you were threatened online after performing poems about immigration and racism and xenophobia what yeah. happened
1: just just that people so people are always a bit mean obviously there's going to be a percentage of people that are just sort of bastards to you online um, and that was fine like people calling me ugly or or just telling me like, like this is not poetry I get that quite a lot as if they're like the gatekeeper of the entire art form in the universe which I do find quite funny and that has only ever been from a guy Um yeah, this is not poetry, but when I put up a poem called Mathematics, basically, about being pro-migration and the fact that um, blaming immigrants in any country for lack of job security just wasn't economically viable. It just doesn't work that way. That's not that's not how migration and, and trade and jobs work at all. Um, so... I put up that poem and it got shared loads. And I guess, obviously, if something gets shared a lot, l- like the poem about breastfeeding, I get a lot of hate for it as well. But that one specifically, there was like a to the right wings a right right wings right wing men's group online that started posting about it and posting the dates of my gigs.
2: Oh God!
1: And um, so that was a bit scary because obviously anyone can find out where I am when I'm on tour and. Mainly I tour on my own So you sort of go on stage And read poems about Other things and being a woman And then like walk on your own to the hotel At like 12 o'clock at night It's not the best um, So so they started posting My dates online and then he put Under one of my videos Oh I'm going to come to your Norwich gig And show you how much I appreciate Your stance on immigration oh um, What happened? Weird though isn't it, the anger So uh, <laughs> so I was going to not do the gig. Um, and then one of my friends said, Oh, but that will be letting them win, which I hate it when people say stuff like that, who aren't (laughs) actually getting threatened. It's like, cool, let him win. I don't want to be beating the shit out of like, I'd rather, I've amazing that people protest so much. Like, I don't know how people do it when they're scared for their lives to carry on protesting. I think it's uh, unreal. Um, But I didn't, like nothing happened. I didn't, I didn't cancel the gig. I went to do the gig, but I was so scared the whole time. It was in like a little pub in Norwich in the back room. Um, And one thing that did happen at the gig, which actually made me sort of not, not stop being scared, but think about it more was that there was one, (laughs) there was one guy at the gig who was about 50 white male covered in tattoos with a shaved head, And, and that I wouldn't say it is like 90% of my audience when I go to the (laughs) gig. Um, And I was reading the poems and I kept thinking, that's him. That's him. Um, And afterwards, when I was signing books, he came up to me and was like, oh, um, my daughter really wanted to come, but she's really ill. So I promised I'd um, come and get her book signed for her. But I really enjoyed the poems. Thanks. And I was just like, oh, my God, I genuinely thought you were like a Mm neo-Nazi. So
2: so (laughs) what happened after the gig? Did you have to walk on your own?
1: Yeah, I had to walk on my own to the car park. It's car parks that I hate the most. Like if I'm staying in a hotel, I feel a bit better because there's a receptionist and stuff. But it's going back to my car and then driving back, which used to scare me more before sat-navs and mobile phones because I'd have to ask for directions and got grabbed once by a guy that I did that with so I didn't really like it but yeah uh, I think eventually it just like when that poem stopped being shared so much it stopped but I changed my name so I changed my name from Holly McNish on all my online stuff because I started getting scared that my daughter had that name and that is quite a rare name I think I don't think there's any other McNishes in England um and so I So was that being, that
0: was a, res- as a consequence of the guy grabbing you, or or just the whole, just picture. all of it, just a, yeah. just
1: the guy grabbing me, but also mainly the this like right wing men's group mm. posting.
2: Oh, on what happened stuff. when he grabbed you? What what did this guy do when he grabbed you?
1: He, I I stopped for directions on the way to a gig in Bristol because I'd been going in circles basically, and it was in quite a rural area. There wasn't it wasn't like there were loads of places to stop and ask people. And then I saw a guy. I thought, Oh my god, I'm going to be late. All right, I'll go. And I wound down the window, and he just started making comments about me being like sexy, <laughs> and um, and I was like, Okay, do you do you know the directions? And then I I started trying to try and put the window up, and he just put his hand through and tried to go for my, for my tits basically. I thought, great, let me go and read some f- empowering poems to people. <laughs> Fuck this world! <laughs> I'm a poet, Do you know. I'm trying to get to a poetry response. <laughs> I know it was it was really annoying though. Like I find it like when people complain about a lot of people that I'm around complain about like the tracking on mobile phones and stuff and the data protection, which I totally get like with sat nav and how freaky it is that they're tracking us all the time and um, people in my family but only men actually in my family talk about it. But with that I think, oh I do get it, but I have never felt so free before since mobiles and, and sat nav came out. Like I hated
2: yeah. it before. <laughs> Getting lost on my own. It's not yeah, a pleasant yeah. experience really. So yeah, that's um really very. But I guess one of the advantages of now being in lockdown is that you don't have to walk alone to a car park after you've done a performance. So have you done any lockdown live events?
1: Yeah, I have. I've been, I was doing a weekly one in the first lockdown. So like every Thursday night and then every Sunday night, I did like a half hour. At first it was a an hour. So I I basically did a gig whenever I had a tour gig because the whole tour got cancelled, obviously. Um, So I did a gig related to the city that I was meant to be in but I I had I was meant to have a sort of support poets on for 20 minutes before I was on so I, I sort of read other people's poems and pretended to be a support poet and then well didn't pretend to be myself read out my own <laughs> poems after that and now I'm still doing it it was it was really nice to do actually it's it's quite amazing being able to do a gig I just put my daughter to bed <laughs> rock downstairs in my pajama bottoms and and do a gig. And and it was nice. I know some people are totally not into all the Zoom and the online. It's not the same. And I don't think it is the same, but I've really enjoyed chatting with friends on Zoom and seeing, I've not watched that much, but I watched like a poetry reading the other day. But yeah, and now I'm just doing um, a weekly Sunday night live on Instagram and Facebook, which is just me. It's called One I Wrote and One I Love. Um, and I just read one or two poems of mine, and then one or two poems of
2: someone else's. I guess it's nice to be home with your daughter quite a lot as well.
1: Yeah, it is. It is nice. I miss the trap. Like I, I don't really miss being on stage at all, but I miss meeting people after gigs, and I'm, I miss seeing. Oh God, I'm really, I miss seeing different places. Yeah. Not ones that are grabbing your tits through a car. Not ones know. that are grabbing my tits through the window, no. but I don't have to ask them anymore. I Just ask Google. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Just before, just before we go, that's a really. Uh, you just said I don't miss being on stage, but I miss you know interacting with my audience. Or whatever is the performance part of poetry your least favorite compared to the writing of the poems?
1: Like literally, just the performance part, like just the standing on stage reading is probably my least favorite. I'm not, I'm not a like terribly shy person, but I still get really nervous at the
2: idea of being like the entertainment is that because um, you're on a stage i mean if you were sitting in a in a room with Friends, or just you know, with uh-huh. people. But if I sit in a room with friends,
1: I'll the last thing I do is read them some okay, poems. Not,
2: not friends, like <laughs> strangers. If you're sitting around, <laughs> go a drink, on, Holly, read us it, a poem. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's something they will never, never say. <laughs> is it going to be musical?
1: I even threaten like my family with my book for Christmases and stuff. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I, th- I think an intimate thing would maybe even be more nerve wracking actually than having like 400 people in an audience audience um because then you can really see if people are like not laughing or not enjoying it um yeah people's faces close up are more scary when I'm performing but I like the performing element in terms of the whole thing as much as the writing like I really like going to different places and I really like talking to people afterwards um and I do like it I like seeing people's reactions I like communal readings so I love going and watching stuff I probably it's terrible I probably for going and seeing live music than I do live poetry but I like seeing live poetry too but I like seeing groups of people chatting and I love having Hindus at gigs stuff like that I really um yeah I really miss but just the just the nerves going up onto the stage and thinking these people have paid money to what watch me read some poems like I, I just really don't want people to be like bored and
0: I'm sure that is it. never an issue. I love the idea of the hen party Holly yeah. McNish gig. That's mm. something we should promulgate through this podcast. <laughs>
1: well, it's only happened in Cardiff. Actually. Okay, she's
0: available to- <laughs> for weddings, and hen <laughs> nights. And,
1: and where can people
0: get you on Facebook for your Sunday night um events? Is
1: Unfortunately, it just- it's Holly Poetry because I changed it. Right. When I was getting threatened, and then I couldn't change it back to McNish when I realized he wasn't coming after me anymore. Oh, it should um, be Holly the Poet. Oh, I know. It should be anything but Holly Poetry. It sounds like I think like my surname is poetry. It's like really terrible, but they were the two Googled words when people said, anyway, I changed all my social medias to Holly Poetry, even like author name on a book, and I'm regretting it now. But anyway, <laughs> so yeah, Holly, <laughs> ugh, hollypoetry.com, Brilliant. or like, and that's, it's the same on Twitter, or Instagram. And really? it's Holly with an IE. Holly,
0: yeah, named after the Hollies. Oh, really?
1: Brilliant.
2: Nice,
0: (laughs) Cool. Thank you so much, Holly. It's been such a pleasure having you on the podcast today. Um, We're very much looking forward to reading your new book when it comes out in May. Um, And thank you for all your insight into such diverse topics as (laughs) Kellogg's and (laughs) masturbation and foreign language. It's been, been a pleasure. Cheers.
2: No problem. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to The World as It Should Be. We hope it inspires you to work towards shaping the world as you think it should be. You can find out more about Prima Donna Festival by going to PrimaDonnaFestival.com. If you enjoyed the episode, please give us five stars on iTunes and leave us a review. Tell your friends about us. We're on Spotify too and all good platforms. The World as It Should Be from Prima
0: Donna. as it should be from prima donna.